Well, good afternoon, everybody. I'm sorry about my voice. I've had a terrible cold since Easter, but I'm getting over it. <clears throat> I would like to dedicate this lecture to the memory of Catholic hero John Schmitz, my old boss and the subject of my lecture in March 2007, <coughs> who was born and grew up in Wisconsin and was a lifelong admirer of Senator Joseph McCarthy. I would also like to use this occasion, speaking solely for myself and not for Christendom College, to make you aware of a major new political development right here in Virginia, in which I hope to have a hand and hope you will join me. There is a man named Bob Marshall, now a delegate to the Virginia State Assembly, who is the most like John Schmitz of any man I've seen since John Schmitz died who's just announced his candidacy for the United States Senate. Don't be too quick to say he has no chance. Any man who has what it takes to succeed in politics against all odds and stands by real principles on which he will not compromise has a chance. The career of John Schmitz proved that, and Bob Marshall has already proved that he has what it takes to succeed in politics against all odds. Some of you here today will remember what I said about John Schmitz in March of last year. Faced with the candidacy of Richard Nixon, who before he was impeached because of the Watergate burglary, and of George McGovern, the candidate of abortion, acid, and amnesty, John Schmitz, a man unknown to the nation at large, got a million votes for president in 1972. Like Bob Marshall, he came up from the grassroots. Those who worked on his campaign have never regretted it, but remember it with pride all their lives. This is how Bob Marshall began his campaign, with a group of patriotic American Catholics saying the chapel of divine mercy last Sunday in the house of Pete Grimberg in Manassas. How many political campaigns in this day and age begin like that? I was there, and I felt you there too in spirit. You can be the grassroots for Bob Marshall. You can help put him in the United States Senate. How would you like to have a United States Senator who is absolutely 100% solid on every pro-life issue, who would never even consider voting any other way? His opponent, James Gilmore, claims to be pro-life, but he's on record as being willing to allow abortion up to eight weeks after conception. If we'd had someone like Bob Marshall in the United States Senate, even this early in the 21st century, it would have changed history. Bob Marshall could change history, and you could be part of it. The email address of Bob Marshall's campaign is bob at bobmarshall2008.com. I would even suggest that you consider forming a group of Christmas College students and alumni for Bob Marshall. See me after this talk if you would like to discuss this further, or after my talk on the last Monday in April. <clears throat> How many of you remember or know of Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin, born in 1908, died in 1957? And How many of you know that you were supposed to hate him? I ask these questions because some years ago I learned that not all slanders passed down the generations when I found that some of my students did not know they were supposed to hate the Spanish Inquisition. 
So how many of you do remember him or know anything about him? How many? Thank you. If you are Catholics and have believed any of the slanders against McCarthy, you should know, first of all, that Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin was a loyal Catholic who was buried with a rosary around his neck. Surely such a man deserves at least a hearing before the tribunal of your soul before you condemn him on hearsay evidence. And he has one biography that corrects the lies and distortions about him, published in 2000, eight years ago, by Arthur Herman, who teaches history right here in Virginia at our own George Mason University. If you doubt what I will tell you today about the Senator, about Senator McCarthy, you should read Arthur Herman's biography. <coughs> we do have it in our library. In his introduction to that biography, Herman says, quote, We need to remember that during the entire period from 1947 to 1958, no American citizens were interrogated without benefit of legal counsel. None was arrested and detained without judicial process, and none went to jail without trial. As George Kennan, no admirer of the investigation, stated, Whoever could get his case before a court was generally assured of meeting there with a level of justice no smaller than at any other time in recent American history. All through the worst of the McCarthy period, worst in quotes, the Communist Party itself was never outlawed. Membership in the party was never declared a crime. And it continued to maintain public offices, to publish books in the Daily Worker, Daily Newspaper, and recruit new members, end quote. By contrast, the communists of the Soviet Union arrested and imprisoned people wholesale, denying them trials and the right to counsel, especially during Stalin's purge trials of the 1930s, facts which everyone, including the Russians, now acknowledge. But the myth of Senator McCarthy still stands. Again, to quote Arthur Herman, Quote, a grand total of 108 Communist Party members were convicted under the anti-subversion provisions of the Smith Act, which Congress passed in 1941, long before McCarthy was a member, and applied equally to Nazi and fascist organizations as to communists. Fewer than a dozen Americans went to jail for espionage activities, one of them being Alger Hiss, who was convicted of perjury. Exactly two were sentenced to death for conspiracy to commit espionage, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. We need to contrast this with three and a half million people who, according to the KGB's own official numbers, were arrested and sent to the Gulag during the six years of Stalin's Great Terror from 1935 to 1941. None had the benefit of any genuine legal protection. Stalin's secret police seized, interrogated, and sentenced a lot. The KGB states that of that number, 681,692 were executed in 1937-1938 alone. Taken with the four or five million people <clears throat> who died in Stalin's great famine of 1932-33, the total number of human beings executed exiled, imprisoned, or starved to death during those years comes to 10 to 11 million. These are official KGB numbers released at the end of the Cold War. They're almost certainly low. 
And all during the years when this was taking place, men and women like Dalton Trumbo, Paul Robeson, and Lillian Hellman, all of whom were condemned by McCarthy and also condemned him, insisted that Stalin was the just and compassionate father of his people, asserted that Soviet citizens enjoyed a freedom and happiness unknown in American society, and celebrated the Soviet Union as the model society for the future. Others, such as Julius Rosenberg, Alger Hiss, Judith Copeland, Martin Sobel, and Steve Nelson, willingly served the Stalinist regime as other espionage agents or as part of the communist underground apparatus. In the 1970s, it became fashionable to deny or at least avoid mentioning this part of the historical context in which McCarthy lived and breathed. If McCarthy was guilty, the reasoning goes, those he tormented must be innocent. Today we know better. Archival materials from the former Soviet Union have revealed that Stalin's intentions were aggressively malign and expansionist, just as America's coldest cold warriors had believed. Historians J.E. Haynes, Harvey Clare, Ronald Radosh, Alan Weinstein, and Alexander Vasiliev have used now declassified American materials as well as Soviet sources to lay to rest any doubts about the Soviet Union's espionage activities as well as the Communist Party's active support of them. In retrospect, the cause McCarthy made his own anti-communism has proved more valid and durable than the basic assumptions of his anti-communist critics." Do you see what I mean when I say that Arthur Herman's arguments are unanswerable, but the liberals and the left will not let the truth about McCarthy's vindication by history be known or heard, to say nothing of respect. They never mention Herman's book, though it was published eight years ago. It remains almost unknown because of their refusal to mention it. Ask the stuff you want to look at. Well, I have it here. You can do that. <clears throat> As McCarthy learned more and more about the group, which had been in the State Department in the 1930s, known as the Old China Hands, who were very sympathetic to the Chinese communists, who actually are on record as saying that Mao Zedong and his cohorts were not communists at all, but just agrarian reformers. He began to assemble the evidence, showing that the Old China Hands was heavily infiltrated by communists including men identified in sworn testimony as members of the Communist Party, such as Frederick Vanderbilt Field, Lachlan Curry, Harry Dexter White, and convicted perjurer Alger Hiss. They had established an organization which they dominated <clears throat> called the Institute for Political Pacific Relations, which published a journal called Pacific Affairs. Its editor was a liberal professor named Owen Lattimore, a typical Ivy League intellectual type whom the plebeian Joe McCarthy disliked on sight. Consequently, he labeled Lattimore Moscow's top spy in America, responsible for the loss of China to communism. Lattimore was never that. But McCarthy never understood the old boy network in Franklin Roosevelt's State Department and his inbred culture, utterly alien to a man of his straightforward, outspoken temperament. Later, the Senate Internal Security Committee, whose chairman was Senator Pat McCarran of Nevada, 
after an extensive investigation of the Institute for Pacific Relations, concluded that Lattimore was, quote, a conscious, articulate instrument of the Soviet conspiracy, end quote. Lattimore had been sent to China as Franklin Roosevelt's representative by Lachlan Curry, now identified as a communist agent. Lattimore hired as co-editor of Pacific Affairs a Chinese communist secret agent named Chen Hanshang, who revealed in his memoirs published in 1988 that he had been given this position at Lattimore's personal request. So McCarthy was not nearly so far wrong about Lattimore as many had thought, although Lattimore played the part of a wronged and innocent man for the rest of his life. <coughs> Even publishing a book called Ordeal by Slander, which vilified McCarthy, very similar to Alger Hiss, who went to his grave, still insisting that he had never been a communist spy, though a jury had convicted him of perjury for denying it and uh, KGB records confirm it. It was Owen Lattimore who invented and gave currency to the term McCarthyism by which the Wisconsin senator's memory has been dishonored. So pervasive has the myth about Senator McCarthy become that I have had students from my alma mater college in Maine telephone me to interview me as a man old enough to remember McCarthy's day to ask what it was like and to say how terrible it must have been to have lived in his time. They were astonished when I told them that everything was perfectly normal then and just like today. At the time, we were all told to hate and fear Senator McCarthy, as we still are. I, I remember the huge black headlines on the story about him in the New York Times Sunday magazine in the mid-50s, The Black Silence of Fear. When black silence has to advertise itself in headlines, it's not very black and not silent at all. Few men in American history have made so many enemies as Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin. He made them because he denounced the communists as deadly enemies of the human race, which history has proved that they were. Everybody knows that now, including the people they used to rule, and numerous records have come to light and been researched, proving that the communists were just as evil, dangerous, and subversive as McCarthy always said they were. So why the continued vendetta against him and his memory? Joseph McCarthy was a working man's Catholic. He was dark and heavy, and he drank beer. Too much of it, he died of cirrhosis of the liver. He was loud and uncouth. He denounced his critics like a barroom bully. He called Senator Robert Hendrickson of New Jersey, quote, a living miracle without brains or guts, end quote. Worst of all, he named names. On the respectable left, you never name names. In his day, men would hide behind the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution to avoid naming names, saying that anything they said would tend to incriminate them when clearly it would not. <coughs> McCarthy had no patience with evasions like this, neither knowing nor caring that they were fashionable. Confronting them, he often lost his never very well-controlled temper. Sometimes, as in his remark about Senator Hendrickson, he was both rude and crude, but history has proved him essentially right. In the Senate hearings in 1953, 
He said of those who took the Fifth Amendment to avoid saying whether or not they were communists. Quote, refusal to answer this question in a criminal court could not be used to infer that you are guilty. When you are asked a question as to whether or not you are a member of the Communist Party, and you say, I honestly feel if I told the truth it might incriminate me, that means to the average person, it means to me, that if you were not a member of the party, you could, of course, say, I'm not a member of the Communist Party. I think we should have it very clear here there is a difference between inference of guilt in a criminal case, which could be used to send you to jail, and the inference which a reasonable man draws from your answer, end quote. Now, what is wrong with that? In June 1952, McCarthy, in a Senate speech entitled America's Retreat from Victory, challenged one of the most revered figures in American history, General George Marshall, who had been Chief of Staff during World War II and Secretary of State after it. Marshall still has many admirers even today, despite his long and proven record of mistakes, including delay in transmitting a warning of the likelihood of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. The message was sent only by ordinary Western Union telegram and was in the box of the messenger's bicycle when the bombs started falling. In Marshall's mission to China in 1947, and how he helped the communists to conquer it. Marshall demanded that the nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek make peace with the communists whom he had always opposed and whose evil Chiang had sensed earlier than any Western statesman. When Chiang would neither make peace with them nor enter a coalition government with them, always their favorite road to final victory over a country, as it was when the communists took over Czechoslovakia, Marshall embargoed American shipments of arms to the nationalists. As a direct result of this gigantic error, China fell to the communists, and they still rule there today. Over one billion people, a third of the human race, even after they've been overthrown in Russia. No rational man believes that Marshall was ever an instrument of the communist conspiracy. But mistakes in this magnitude should not be forgotten as they have been forgotten by most people, including virtually all historians. They bear strongly on Marshall's fitness for one of the highest offices in our government, Secretary of State under President Truman. McCarthy had every right to point him out. Marshall had listened too much to the old China hands, who, as we have seen, were infiltrated by known communists. Encountering these facts, the left invented a pejorative phrase, which has become a red herring to obscure the truth. The term China lobby applied to all who supported Chiang Kai-shek against the communists. That term is as big a lie as any Joseph McCarthy was ever accused of telling. For as everybody in Washington knows, a lobby is an alliance to advance private interests by influencing government policy. And the supporters of Chiang Kai-shek including Joe McCarthy, had absolutely nothing to gain personally by the support and advocacy of him. So there never was a China lobby. Joseph McCarthy's career came to an end when he took on the United States Army, when former general and lifelong career army officer Dwight Eisenhower was president. Eisenhower believed that McCarthy was positioning himself to run against him for re-election. There is no evidence whatsoever 
that McCarthy ever considered doing anything of the kind, though his detractors still imply it. Senate hearings were held on McCarthy's investigation of the Army. These hearings were nationally televised and are still aired periodically. They are supposed to teach us to hate and despise McCarthy. McCarthy's enemies seem to regard the Army as above criticism, a position which comes very strangely from political liberals who today eagerly join in criticism of our generals in Iraq. In February 1954, McCarthy was questioning Army General Ralph Zwicker about his approval of the promotion of an Army dentist named Perez, despite evidence that Perez was a communist. Zwicker refused to discuss any aspect of the Perez promotion because he said it would violate the rules of confidentiality. McCarthy's sensing cover-up exploded. He had been in an automobile accident the night before with his new bride, to whom he was devoted. She had suffered a broken ankle. He had spent the night with her in the hospital. So McCarthy's temper, never well controlled, was on a hair trigger, and he denounced the general and said that his wicker would not answer questions directly. He should be removed from the man. His credits descended upon McCarthy like so many wolves. Who was he to question the patriotism of a general and a decorated veteran? How could a mere dentist aid the communist cause? The Zwicker incident finally became the basis of his censure by the Senate, which destroyed his career and in the end took his life. McCarthy was badly hurt because he trusted two men on his staff who proved themselves to be unworthy of his trust. Roy Cohn, a brilliant young Jewish lawyer from New York who had a homosexual relationship with an army private named David Shine, which McCarthy, who despised homosexuality, never suspected. Cohn eventually died of AIDS, but not before he and Shine had investigated overseas army libraries for subversive literature, causing McCarthy's critics to accuse him of the supreme liberal sin, book burning. Almost needless to say, neither he nor they ever actually burned or destroyed any books. Before McCarthy took on the army, opinion polls showed that the majority of Americans approved of his anti-communist crusade. But then came the Senate hearings known as the Army McCarthy hearings. After those hearings, which were nationally televised, and I watched them while they were going on, McCarthy's support plummeted. What happened at these hearings to effectively destroy McCarthy's career. The stated purpose of the hearings, which began April 22, 1954, was to determine whether McCarthy and Cohn had unfairly pressured the Army to give special privileges to David Shine at Fort Dix and whether they had used the threat of further investigations to gain these privileges. Essentially, McCarthy was put on trial, a trial on television. McCarthy did not make an attractive appearance on television, and all his weaknesses, his temper, his oversimplifications, even his personal appearance, presented the negative image. But three particular issues raised, by, raised in the hearings brought down McCarthy through the skill of the lawyer hired by the Defense Department, whose name was Joseph Welsh. The first issue was the crop photograph. 
Conan McCarthy and entered into evidence a photograph of David Shine with Secretary of Defense Stevens at Fort Dix. The Army claimed there was great tension between Stevens and Shine because of the pressure from McCarthy. Yet in the photo, the two men looked relaxed and friendly. But then Welsh went to work. He produced the original photo, which had a third man in it, the camp commander, who had been cropped from the photo McCarthy used as evidence. In Herman's words, the, implica- the implication was clear to the audience in the room and on television. McCarthy and his staff had doctored the evidence. End quote. It's exactly what Welsh said. I can hear it now. That photograph is being shamefully doctored. That's what he said. Just because this man that wasn't important was removed from it. Never mind the third person was completely irrelevant to the point McCarthy was making. Never mind that army photographers themselves had removed the third man when copying the photo for McCarthy. And so the crop photo became evidence of McCarthy's dishonesty. The second issue was the purloined letter. To show that he had good reason for investigating army security lapses and was not just making trouble to persuade the army to favor Shine, McCarthy offered as evidence a letter from the FBI to army officials warning them about various security risks at Fort Monmouth. Welch did not address the contents of the letter. Instead, he demanded to know how McCarthy had come into possession of it. Welch also pointed out that the letter was not the original and therefore implied it might be spurious. The third and most damaging issue was the Fred Fisher incident, which took place on June 9th. Two days earlier, Welch and Cohn had reached a deal. Welch would not mention Cohn's avoidance of the draft if Cohn would not bring up Fred Fisher, a young lawyer on Welch's staff who had once been a member of the National Lawyers Guild, a Communist Front organization. Fisher's membership was mentioned in a New York Times story two weeks earlier, so it was public knowledge, but no one had paid much attention to the story. On June 9th, Welch had Cohn on the stand and was badgering him, mockingly saying that if Cohn knew of a communist or subversive, he would try to get him out of town before sundown. Angry at the hectoring questions, McCarthy seized the microphone and said that if Welch was really concerned about communists, he should know about a member of his own staff. Cohn panicked and tried to get McCarthy's attention to remind him of the agreement not to bring up Fisher. But McCarthy simply plowed ahead and asked if Welch knew about Fisher's membership in the National Lawyers Guild. Welch, with a pained look on his face and a tremor in his voice, again, I can remember this vividly, I was watching him, said, until this moment, Senator, I think I never really gauged your cruelty on your recklessness. Fred Fisher is a young man who went to Harvard Law School and came to my firm and is starting what looks to be a brilliant career with us. <laughs> Little did I dream you could be so reckless or so cruel as to do an injury to that lad. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You have done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you no sense of decency? Welch wept openly in front of the television cameras. Fisher, of course, never suffered for one moment for what McCarthy said about it. His career prospered. McCarthy's career, however, was finished. 
McCarthy was censured by the Senate by an overwhelming vote. Totally unable to understand with reason the vehement hostility of his colleagues and of the press, he proceeded to drink himself to death. As I said earlier, he died of cirrhosis of the liver, the usual fate of alcoholics. I'm not a great admirer of Jack Kennedy, but he would not vote for the censure. should be noted. Toward the end of his Senate service, Joseph McCarthy alone opposed and alone voted against the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice William Brennan, who called himself a Catholic, but provided a vote for the infamous decision in the case of Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion throughout the United States and led directly to our modern holocaust of more than a million babies killed every single year. There is no doubt, whatever you think of McCarthy, that he thereby proved himself a better Catholic than Justice Brennan. It is pleasant to mention that in the twilight of his short life, Joe McCarthy, a lifelong bachelor, found a beautiful and brilliant woman named Jean Kerr to share his life in his crusade. Jean helped him write books and statements and was with him to the end. She wrote a book entitled McCarthyism, The Fight for America. It is time that fair men, just men, restored Joe McCarthy to the place of honor in American history, especially Catholic history, which he deserves and which the violently hostile media has denied him. More than 50 years have now passed since his death. Yet the vilification of Joe McCarthy continues unabated and is accepted as a matter of course by nearly everyone. Most people have never heard anyone speak up for him. Truth that the old saying tells us is the daughter of time. Isn't it time for a little charity to Joe McCarthy who hated no one and died a truly Catholic death? The man I once worked for, Catholic hero John Schmitz, was, as I said at the beginning, a great admirer of Joe McCarthy. So was L. Brent Bozell, Jr., whose magazine Triumph was the seatbed of Christendom College. Brent Bozell co-authored with the late William Buckley, the founder and editor of the magazine National Review, the book. Bozell and Buckley co-authored the book McCarthy and His Enemies, the only book other than Herman's biography which gives McCarthy fair and respectful treatment. I am proud to carry Senator McCarthy's banner into the 21st century. The next time you hear someone denouncing Joe McCarthy, tell him about Arthur Herman's book, which the vehemently anti-McCarthy media will never mention nor acknowledge. It is so unanswerable that they have never even tried to answer it, just will not admit that it exists. So far, they've succeeded in burying it in the memory hole. I hope in the future you will join me in pulling it out of the memory hole and bringing it to light. Then perhaps the day will draw closer when we will give rightful honor to the man who lies silent now in a cemetery in Appleton, Wisconsin, under a stone reading Joseph R. McCarthy, United States Senator, 1908-1957. Perhaps you may help, him, help to make him no longer America's most hated senator.